Good morning, everybody. Oh, this is going to be all right. There we are. Hello, hello. It is so cool to be with you this morning. We've got no masks on. I mean, I, ah, it's so nice to see you, man. It's so nice to sing. It's so nice to see one another's faces as we, as we bring Christ the best of our, what's in our hearts. You know, it is glorious. And for me, just be honest, personally, it's so cool to have my family with me. Jack, by the way, is on the other side. Can, can I ask you, can I embarrass you just like very little bit quickly, guys? Sorry, man. I'll, I'll give you a treat later if you, just, uh, can you just stand? This is my daughter, Bethany, over here. Just, just have a wave. Oh, there you. And this is my son, Ben. Oh, he's cool. <laughs> and and you, you've met Lauren, hey? Lauren, just, just please say hello. Ah, you see? See, that, that, yeah, anyway, it's so, I, love, I love that I get to be here regularly, but it's lovely that we get to be here as a family today as well. It's so cool, man. Look at this weather. Look at this Sunday as we worship. Look at this, look at this red on this thing. Every time I come here, the red is bigger and the green is smaller. I mean, that is, that's amazing, guys. There's so much to celebrate, eh? Anyway, where are we before I get, well, we better get into what we're supposed to do today. Um, if you don't know me, hey, by the way, my name is Luke, and it's a privilege to be able to share a message with you today. We as a church have been working through the book of James. James is a book that was written in the New Testament. So James was actually Jesus' younger brother, who um, initially kind of was opposed to Christ, and then came to faith in Jesus and believed that he was the son of God come as the Messiah to rescue people and reunite us to God, and then became one of the first church leaders uh, by midway through the book of Acts, which is, if you know Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, then the book of Acts is the story of the birth of the church, if you will, by midway through the book of Acts. In fact, it's James who's the leader of the first church, the church in Jerusalem. And now James is writing to a group of Christians, trying to, trying to speak to them about, about life in the kingdom. And uh, so we, we are working through the book of James, and we've entitled our series, Real Faith for Real Life. Real faith to real life. The idea being that real faith, when the gospel is internalized, truly taken into the depths of who you are, it transforms your, your very personhood, your very nature. James uses the word for the gospel, the word of truth. When the word of truth is internalized, it, it, it marinades it. Oh, I'm sorry for all the meat metaphors, but it, 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 gets, it gets through you. You know, it works through your bones. It works through your heart. It works through your nature. And it transforms who you are as we actively embrace the gospel that we received in a moment and then for a lifetime embrace and outwork in our lives. We are transformed. Real faith transforms us and leads us to real life. Now, um, I there's Colin at the back there. Colin kind of began last week, a little two-part um, sermonette. The, the, to, last week uh, was the left, or maybe they say, last week was the right, and, uh, and this message is the left. These two messages come together. Last week, Colin's message on faith and favoritism, and uh, that was part one, and I'm gonna do faith and favoritism part two as we continue our journey through the book of James. Uh, let's get into the Bible. If you wanna open with me, to your, I'm gonna put up on the screen, but James chapter two, and uh, verse uh, 8 to 13. That's where, we're, that's where we're at. James chapter 2, verse 8 to 13. You can follow along in your Bibles uh, on your own or read along with me on the screen. If you really fulfill the royal law according to the scripture, which one? You, you shall love your neighbors, you love yourself. You're doing well. 
But if you show partiality, key word, another synonym there would be uh, favoritism, prejudice, discrimination being the result of that. But if you show partiality, you are committing sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. For whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become guilty of all of it. For he who said, do not commit adultery, also said, do not murder. If you do not commit adultery, but you do murder, you have become a transgressor of the law. So speak and so act as those who are to be judged under the law of liberty. For judgment is without mercy to the one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. Let's pray as I set my timer here. Father, we come before your word now. We thank you that your scriptures were inspired by you. And as believers, most of us in the room, we're followers of Christ. We come under your word today and we say, God, would you realign our lives so that we can live out your word and your truth? Maybe you're here, you're not a Christ follower. You pray, God, if you're real, would you speak to me? Would you speak to me as one um, who, who has the right way to live in this world? and the means with which to do it. Ask in your name, Jesus. Amen. Okay, so I'm gonna to start today by sharing the big idea of this passage we've read, and then we're gonna make three points uh, in, that, in that big idea. And the big idea today is real faith loves in light of God's mercy. Real faith loves in light of God's mercy. Now, can I ask you to do something really cheesy and borderline cultish? Can you repeat after me, please? Real faith loves in light of God's mercy. You ready? Real faith loves in light of God's mercy. One more time, one more time. Now, why would we do something so cheesy and borderline cult? It's just to help us remember, right? I'm hoping that in my heart of hearts, if someone was to ask you on Tuesday, hey, what is church all about on, on Sunday? You'd say, oh, it's, we, we spoke about how real faith loves in light of God's mercy. And, and the point being this, when you have received mercy, when you have received mercy, the entire trajectory of your life has been altered because you've received mercy from God. This is a vertical dynamic between you and God. God's mercy lavished over your life, every sin forgiven, every barrier between you and God rubbed away as you're brought into relationship with Him, eternal relationship with Him because of His mercy, vertical. Oh, it overflows horizontally into your relationships with one another. The heart which has been impacted by God's mercy as it receives mercy then overflows mercy horizontally into its relationships. And, and what's so critical here is understanding our plight, the desperate, the desperate place we were in outside of the mercy of God. I mean, we struggle with this. It's kind of like, like good suburban citizens, you know? Oh, you know, I'm, I'm all right. I'm quite good. No, 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 no. Outside of God's mercy, our plight was disastrous, desperate. But God loved us and lavished his mercy upon us. And therefore, we rejoice, we are glad, we overflow, and we love horizontally differently. Mercy experienced on the inside has so softened our hearts that maybe we were cold, maybe we were distant, maybe we were hard towards other people groups, other persons, other categories of human beings which we created. But 
but experiencing mercy softens our hearts, heals our eyes, and we see others differently. Real faith loves in light of God's mercy. Our first point today, I said three points. Number one, faith and real faith, and last week Colin used the word favoritism. I'm gonna go a little stronger as I build on his shoulders. He's laid the, the groundwork, now I'm gonna stand on his shoulders. Real faith and discrimination are incompatible. Real faith and discrimination are incompatible. Have a look with me, verse eight and nine. But if you really fulfill the royal law according to the scripture, you shall love your neighbors, you love yourself. You are doing well. Now he creates a contrast, a comparison. But if you show partiality, you're committing sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. Let's zoom in on a couple of these, couple of these words. First word to zoom in on the royal law. James speaks of the royal law. If you were to translate this directly or literally into English, this is what it is, the law of the king. What's he speaking about? He's writing, remember, to Christians who were initially Jewish. And so they brought with them in, uh, into their Christian faith, the understanding of, of, of the Jewish Old Testament. They knew the law. And so James is speaking of the law um, as kind of expanded by Christ. And so which law in, in, specifically, James hones in on one specific part of the royal law uh, that discrimination is violating, and it's this, to love your neighbor as you love yourself. And James sets up a contrast between two opposing ideas. If you really wanna keep the law, you're doing well. If you nail this, well done to you, he says. But if you show partiality, you sin. Another word to double click on their sin. Sin is simply the word for missing the mark. If you can imagine an archery competition with me as I shoot and the arrow comes in here and it's supposed to hit there but in fact it hits there. Sin is the gap where you miss the mark. And so James is saying if you think you're following Christ but you show partiality, there's a gap between what it means to follow Christ and how it is you're living. That's what he's saying there. But if you show partiality, what is partiality? Partiality literally in the Greek means this, judging or valuing people according to their face. You see another human being made in the image of God and you value, value or you rank or you treat them on the basis of external characteristics of their lives. Now, James's time, it was that they were discriminating against the poor in favor of the rich. They would treat rich people differently than poor people. I'm so glad we've moved on uh, 2,000 years later. Eh? <laughs> Bit of nervous laughter. Faith-based, I mean, sorry, faith and face-based discrimination are incompatible because it violates the royal law of love. You see, it's clear that in this church that James is writing to, in this group of believers, there is discrimination at play. It had crept into the lives of believers, and James sees no other option but to address it head on. Why? And I think this is why. I think it's because James had seen the kind of community that Jesus was building. James saw firsthand, remember, he's Jesus' younger brother. He, Jesus lived all and around him. He saw Jesus. He knew what Jesus was like. He saw the way that Jesus treated other people and the way in which when you treat people like that, when you value people like that, you, you form a community around you that is so different, so countercultural than the society in which he lived. And James had seen this firsthand. Jesus' way of being with people who were different than him and engaging with them in the kind of kindness, the way in which he dignified who they were as human beings, 
right through the lenses of all of society's barriers and categories. Jesus had a way of seeing through that to the the image of God within that person and communicating dignity in a kind way to them. He treated people always kinder than they they expected, than everybody expected. You think of the the, the lepers, you think of um, the the handicapped beggar, you think of those who were demon-possessed. Jesus treated people in a way in which was just totally, it was alien to the world. And James had seen this. You think of the story of the Good Samaritan. Maybe you know the story of the Good Samaritan. You grew up in a school maybe where they spoke about it. Everybody seems to know about the Good Samaritan. And the moral of the story often is taught to the Good Samaritan. We should be kind to other people and help other people, right? When Jesus first told that story, they heard it totally differently. See, Jews and Samaritans were externally different different categories. They were diametrically opposed to one another. The Jews kind of saw the Samaritans as sellouts. They were, they were, oh, there was animosity between these two. And so Jesus tells the story of the Good Samaritan. The closest parallel I can think of to this story is that of, imagine stepping back with me 50 years into the heart of apartheid South Africa. And, uh, and, and, and tensions between black, white, colored are at their highest And Jesus gets up and he tells the story of a white man who is beaten and lying on the side of the road. Imagine this, imagine telling this story 50 years ago in South Africa. There's a white man on the side of the road and uh, a white priest kind of drives by in his car and he doesn't do anything. And then a white worship leader, obviously nothing like any of you guys, you know, drives past in his car. And then a black man comes by, 1970, South Africa white man on the side of the road, beaten and bloodied, and a black man comes by, and he sees him, and he says, oh, let me help you, and he takes money out of his pocket, and he takes the man to a place where they can care for him, and he says to him, look after this man, put put all of his medical bills on my tab. You can imagine hearing this 50 years ago in South Africa. The the moral of the story is not, not just so much we should be kind to other people, but it's treating people deeper than um, uh, through the the caricatures we have to separate and divide each other to the human being within. That's how Jesus did it. You you think maybe the story of the woman at the well. John chapter four tells us the story of a woman in, in, in Samaria, a Samaritan woman at the well. John four verse seven, and a woman from Samaria came to the well to draw water and Jesus said to her, give me a drink. For his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. I think it's up on the screen as well. The Samaritan woman said to him, how is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman from Samaria? You see the lens now, all these things. For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. And the conversation goes on. Jesus engages with her with a sense of dignity and kindness that's unseen in that world around them. So much so that verse 27, and then his disciples come back and they marveled that he was talking with a woman and no one said, what do you seek? Or why are you talking with her? Sure, nobody said anything, but they were all thinking it, right? Yet that didn't stop Jesus. Jesus had a way of cutting through the external face value, partiality, Barriers that divide our society to seeing the human being, the image of God within that person and treating them with a level of kindness that was unexpected. And that 
that way of treating other people in every one of his dealings built a kind of community around him where people saw one another as different than, than any, any other place in society. And I think James, if you, if you, you would ask me, James had seen this and he saw that community and then he saw the way the church were treating each other and he couldn't reconcile these two. He couldn't reconcile these two. And so he has to address this issue head on. It's worth taking a little detour here. It's one of the things that makes us as Christians so different than anyone else in the world. We see, we see human beings through the external characteristics of our lives. Every human being is made in the image of God. You're more than, please excuse my crudeness. Every human being you meet is more than just flesh with the ability to reason. You're made in the image of God. There is something sacred that God has breathed into and put into the very essence of every human being, which means we treat one another differently. If you don't believe me, ask David Brooks, who's a political journalist in the States. He says it so well, he says it like this. He says, I'm asking you to believe that there is a piece of you that has no shape or size or color or weight but that gives you infinite dignity and value. Rich and successful people don't have more of this than less successful people. Slavery is wrong because it's an obliteration of another soul. How we treat people has to factor in this sacred part. Now, if you're a Christian, this is what you believe. Brooks said, when you understand that another human being is made in the image of God more than just flesh with the ability to reason, you treat them appropriately. You treat people because they are more than what they appear to be on the outside because God has made them so that way. Which means, remember I said this is one of the things that differentiates us as Christ followers than anyone else in the world. It means that we can disagree with others others' preferences, others' perspectives, others' ways of life. You can disagree. The Bible, the Bible, much of the Bible does fit with our culture, but much of it doesn't. It means we can disagree and be at odds with our culture, but in our disagreeing, we can never treat somebody as less than human. We can never treat someone in a way that undermines their worth and their humanity. And in a culture, and if you, you, you be honest, you've seen this, in a culture whereby if you don't agree with my preferences or practices, I can cancel you. I can write you off, I can block you, I can dismiss you as if you don't exist. This makes you and I as Christians profoundly unique in that we can disagree. We don't have to go with everything that happens in our world but we can still communicate dignity and value and worth. And Jesus had a way of doing that. You remember Jesus, they brought before him the woman caught in the act of adultery. I could be wrong, I'm going on memory here. This run about John 7, I think. Um, and, and, and now they've got to grapple with this issue of genuine sin that's been found here, you know? And remember, Jesus deals with it and he disarms the situation, but what does he say to her then? He says, he says woman, where are your condemners? And, and they're all gone. And he says, neither do I condemn you, but go and sin no more. It, it, it's this ability to, to communicate worth and dignity, but yet still not to collapse 
the kingdom to the lowest common denominator of culture. C.S. Lewis said it another way. He said, there, there are no ordinary people. You've never talked to a mere mortal. Nature, nations, cultures, arts, civilizations, these are mere mortal. And their life is to ours as the life of a gnat. But it, it is immortals with whom we joke and work, marry, oh, and snub and exploit. Christianity gives us this unique way in our society of valuing others beyond their external circumstances. Just as an aside, in, in the culture, in, in, John's, I mean, in James's culture, it was money. It was money that blinded people to this reality. They would treat rich people a particular way and the poor a particular way. I, I, it, we can't stare at this text without looking at the reality of money's power to blind us to these things. Jesus spoke about mammon, a love of money, being a living power, wanting to influence our lives, to blind us to this reality. And our moment in history is no different. Materialism still has the power to blind us, to cause us to treat ourselves and treat others and to view and value ourselves and value others differently. And yet, it's the gospel that cuts through this, as we'll see in a second. We're making the point that uh, faith and discrimination are incompatible. The second point is, okay, well that makes sense, Luke. Why do we struggle then? Why do we struggle so with this? And James's answer is because we compartmentalize. We compartmentalize, verse 10 and 11. For whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become guilty of it. For he who said do not commit adultery also said do not murder. And if you do not commit adultery, but you do murder, you've become a transgressor of the law. What's he saying here? He's saying that James is speaking to Jewish Christians who have an understanding of the Mosaic law. And there's a temptation to follow God in some areas of the law. And because you're getting it right over here, you can then let something slip over here. You know, we can turn a blind eye to other things over here. We, we compartmentalize. We can write off that part of our lives from this part of our lives because we're knocking it out the park over here. We're not committing adultery. Therefore, we can excuse a little bit of murder on the side. And it's ludicrous, actually, when you put it like that, isn't it? And James is saying exactly that. It's absurd. It's absurd that we do that. I think so many of us, we have Christianity that's a little bit like a sports kit bag. Sports kit bags have got all of these little compartments. You've got the, the place for the sweaty socks and the place for the muddy boots, but that's not the same place for the gum guard because that would be gross. And so you have to have another compartment, right, to keep everything separate. And much like it, you can have like your Sunday Christian faith life, and your Monday to Friday work life, your family life, and your at the pub with your mates life, and all of these things remain separated in little compartments. And if you're okay here, then you can excuse over here. And what James is saying is real faith transforms all of your life. There's no compartments. It's integrated, the gospel gets a hold of you, gets a hold of the whole of you, transforms all of you. It seems so obvious in the example of um, murder and adultery, doesn't it? But James is saying more than just that. Let me say it like this. He's saying that only keeping the whole law keeps the law whole. Only keeping the whole law keeps the law whole. What do I mean? Um, when we break 
When we become selective about the parts of the Bible that we obey and not the other parts, we break what is called the principle of the unity of God's law. The unity of God's law. In other words, all of the individual commandments add up to one indivisible whole. And together they reflect the will of the lawgiver. All of the individual commandments add up to one individual whole, which that whole reflects the will of the one who gives the law. And so to embrace some and disregard others so as to distort the image of the lawgiver. If we're honest, probably you feel it like I do, as they did in James's day, obviously, the temptation to choose parts of the Bible and parts of God's law and to neglect others. And you excel in some areas and you neglect others. And I think if we just look at church history, so much of the funkiness that we see happening in churches and in church history is simply because of overemphasizing one aspect, one aspect of the truth in the law and neglecting another. It's how you get to errors like hyper-grace, prosperity gospel, legalism, even universalism and our modern tendency to soften the Bible's kind of sexual ethic. What we do is we, we're driving a wedge between love and law that simply doesn't exist because in keeping all of the law you reflect the whole of who God is rather than picking and choosing and every one of us needs to recognize that every cultural moment will have some areas where we're at odds with our culture and it's tempting to fudge or smudge them but when we do so we recognize that what we're doing is we're distorting who God really is and James says hey beware of this Faith and discrimination are incompatible. We struggle with this because we can justify it in our lives by compartmentalizing. And what we do when we do that is we fail to allow the gospel to permeate every part of our being. And so number three, how do we get this right? How do we get this right? Verse 12 and 13. So speak and so act as those who are to be judged under the law of liberty. For judgment is without mercy to one who has shown no mercy, but mercy triumphs over judgment. So speak and so act as those who are to be judged. Live, speak, do as, if, as those who are about to be judged, but under the law of liberty. Let everything you say and everything you do, you should live those and speak those as if, because you will be, those things will be exposed ultimately before Christ. Oh, there's so much, within the church, there's much discrepancy about when Jesus will return and what it will be like when he returns. But there is no debate that Christ will in fact come back. And when he does, among other things, he will bring with him judgment and every one of us will stand before him. And in that moment, the law of liberty, in that moment, those who are in Christ will not receive what we deserve. We will receive, in fact, mercy because all of us have failed to live according to God's perfect law. All of us have in some way compartmentalized. All of us have in some way not nailed to represent the full image of who God is. But Christ, here's the key, Christ fulfilled the law on our behalf and Christ took upon himself the judgment as if he had not in order that he can, he can put onto us 
the right standing that we don't deserve under the law of liberty. We will all face judgment, although our judgment will be for Christ who offers us grace and mercy. And so live as one who will face judgment and receive mercy from God. Allow mercy received to translate to mercy shown to others. Allow mercy to heal your eyes so you see others differently. But there's a warning in there too. For judgment is without mercy to one who has shown no mercy. I guess in some ways we can say real faith is a litmus test. Because how do you know if you've experienced real faith? How do you know your faith's experience? How do you know if your faith is real? In a sense, you show mercy, James is saying. Real faith means you show mercy to others. He's saying in a sense, those who've rejected God's mercy will also fail to show mercy to others. But the Christ follower who receives mercy shows mercy outwards. And that showing mercy almost in a sense, um, it, it shows, it exposes the reality of the mercy that you've received from God as it puts it on display into the world. It transforms how you live outwardly. In fact, God's mercy so transforms our hearts as Christians that we look forward to God's judgment. God's mercy, the gospel, so transforms us that we look forward toward judgment in anticipation of mercy that will be waiting there for us. You see, that mercy then changes your heart. And it softens your heart. And it changes who you are. In fact, Paul, Paul speaks of the way in which the gospel transforms us. He says, it's no longer I that live, but Christ that lives in me. He says, I'm, I'm a new creation. Something altogether new has been put at the center of who I am. I have a new nature in God. And so when you receive, uh, James's words, the word of truth, the gospel, it, it comes and lives within you. It changes who you are. But not only that, then God gives you his spirit that empowers you. And now you have a new bias within you and a new source of power within you, which means you are capable of living in ways, not only do you see other people differently because you've experienced God's mercy, but you've been empowered to live in different ways, which means you are capable of living in a new way of, I mean, Switchfoot, for those of you guys who know the band, sang a song called A New Way of Being Human. There's a new way to be human because you have a new center, a new source, the gospel, and a new power, the spirit at work within you. And so birthed in that is a new humanity, a new way of living and loving. And now, now here's the thing, if you embrace that and day by day, that's why we preach through James, week by week we say, God, I come under your word, change me. This Sunday I wanna arrive a little bit different than I was last week. Next Sunday, a little bit different than I was. If I keep going, I'm gonna fall off. But the, the idea being, slowly over time I'm being transformed. toward the day that I stand before Christ in judgment, which means little by little, as much as I anticipate mercy here, also I can anticipate through this life that is transformed, the words of my father saying, well done, my boy, well done. You lived it out. 
because you have a new nature and you have a new power source. You live in extraordinarily different ways. We live with anticipation towards judgment and the coming of Christ with joy because we know mercy is waiting for us. But so too, there is a sense in which we get to present the good that God has done through us. We always think of the negative side of judgment, but, but, but because you've been transformed or because you've been empowered, we live toward that day longing to hear the commendation of our heavenly father saying, well done, my boy, well done, my girl. You did it, you lived in this way. You see, God's gracious acceptance of us doesn't mean we ignore the law. The law. Douglas Moo, sorry, the law and Moo got Lou. Um, <laughs> Douglas Moo, commentating on this passage, says the gospel places us on a new footing and empowers us to live obediently in a new way. No longer under the law, over us, threatening to condemn us, now we embrace it because we love it. Why? Because your heart has been transformed through receiving mercy. You love to embrace the image of God embodied in the law and live out his ways in your world. Mercy has freed us from condemnation to sin and now empowers us to live in extraordinarily different ways. Real faith leads to transformed life. In fact, if you're a Christian, it's the only kind of living that is compatible with who you now are. There's an African proverb that tells this so beautifully. It's a story of a farmer who went out one day and was hiking. And in his hiking around, he came across on a cliff, an abandoned nest with an egg in it. And he did what he thought was right, was he took that egg and he took it back home to the farm and he put it in the nest of a chicken. And there, this big eagle egg sat alongside three or four chicken eggs in the nest. And so what happened was over time, the eggs hatched and this eagle was born alongside the chickens. But all the eagle knew to do was to live like its brothers and sisters, the chickens. And so what did this eagle do? As much as it was bigger and it looked a bit different, it only saw what it, what it knew in its culture and society, I mean in its nest and on its farm. And so it would cluck around and live like a chicken. It would eat on the floor, the little millies and the things. That would, that's, how, that's what it did, right? Until one day it looked up in the sky and Christ came as a human being incarnate. I mean, sorry, and an eagle flew over. And it saw a picture of what it could be, of humanity, I mean, of, of what an eagle really should be like. And then it embraced the gospel and it was transformed. Sorry, no, I'm, I'm taking it too far. But, but in that moment, you've got to realize the only kind of life compatible for, uh, uh, with who that eagle is, is not clacking around, unable to fly, eating mealies like a chicken. Because that life is incompatible with its, new, with its nature. Now, now, now what James is saying, when you receive the word of truth, you see in Christ, this is the life for which you've been transformed. That is the world for which you are being made ready for. Every week, it's why we read our Bibles. It's not because I could tick, tick off, I read my Bible today. No, no, I am being readied for that world. My true identity is not in this one. The longest place you will live is, is with Christ. This is but just however many years. Maybe you're taking your vitamins, you get like lots of years, I don't know. But, but this is but short compared to ultimately where your home is. And James is saying, don't live like a chicken. 
You've, you've got a new, you've, in the gospel, you've been transformed and you've been given a new nature. The spirit of God is at work in you. Yes, there's a residue of culture and chicken ways. All of us carry that residue. It's why we come on a Sunday, we, we sit under the word of God, say, God, expose that residue, transform me. I wanna become more like you. Now, we would be naive to think that if we live in a nation like South Africa, that partiality and favoritism and discrimination are not alive in our hearts. Whatever end of the kind of color spectrum you find yourself, our history has shaped us. And it's like the one thing you can't do in South Africa at the moment is admit to that reality because of the shame and the scorn with which you feel. And so what do you do? Do you just bury it? Do you just hide it? The gospel says no. You know there is mercy waiting for you. You know you haven't kept the whole of the law. We all know we're broken. But that part of us is dying as the word of truth takes strength and develops in us, as the spirit of God is working with that. And so we lean into Christ for mercy all the more, for the spirit to empower our transformation. And we go out and we do and we love in light of God's mercy. All the whilst he transforms us. Can I pray for us and can we just create a bit of space to do business with Jesus? as we ask Christ to align us to his word. Can I invite the band to come up? Let's stand together. We're standing because we're changing gears, no longer preaching, now we're responding to God in prayer to change us. Come, let's be honest, let's be honest, just you and Jesus now. God, there's, there's, there is partiality at work in our culture. It is so thick, it is rife. It's there in thinking, it's there in desiring, it's caught in media, it's caught in conversation. It's, caught, it's just, but you, you saw fit to say, there is another way, there is a higher way. And there is a means to get there. It is through embracing the gospel that transforms who we are, receiving mercy, and then asking Christ to have mercy transform our hearts and eyes and minds so that we can give mercy to others. Perhaps it's even in extending mercy through barriers of difference that you'll find that transformation is sped up. And so would you take a second, let's close our eyes and let's do business with Jesus. Jesus, I want to recognize that, uh, yeah, there's a residue in this area in my life. All of us are different places. You've got to put your words to this in your heart where you're at. But you've got to be honest with Jesus. Jesus, we need you. We need you, and the way in which we get you is through receiving mercy. Jesus, I receive mercy afresh, Mercy to cover over the sin, the gap between how I'm living and how I can live in you. Jesus, flood my heart with mercy. No shame like what's found in our culture. Mercy, Jesus. I pray, Lord, you'd give us right now a revelation of just how much mercy we needed. In a, world that, in a world that would tell us how good we are and how perfect we are, we're made just the way we are, etc. No, we need mercy. But you have mercy more than sufficient for us.
And so Christ, I ask you to come and transform my heart. Make it that inside me I long to live in your ways. That my sin would grieve my heart to the place where I receive mercy from you and then go and live it out in my world, Jesus. Holy Spirit, would you come and freshly empower my life? God, I stand before you under your word. I want to live in your ways, but I need your help. Come and fill me with your spirit. So God, and today, as I go into my workplace, Jesus, I want to live in this way, the way Jesus saw through. Help me to see like that, Jesus. Where I need courage, would you give me courage? Perhaps for some of us, it's admitting we've got it wrong. Maybe you need to go and, and talk to somebody. Go, go back and make amends. It's in these acts that the grace of God gets to us. Let's continue in prayer and response as the band leads us in song. But would you stay in this place and ask God to meet with you? I believe we believe with all our hearts that God is with us. He's at work in us and he ministers to us in these moments. Let's embrace him to work in us.